0: Amen. You may be seated and turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, that's where we want to spend our time together in the Word this morning. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. And uh, we want to spend the next couple weeks talking about the wonderful truths of Christmas. Uh, Christmas is one of those things. Uh, times of year where I think we we are reminded. I was having a conversation this week about the reason I love Christmas. One of the reasons I love Christmas is that people actually want the old. We spend most of the year wanting the new, wanting the update, wanting the, the thing, but when Christmas rolls around, we want the old songs. We want the old traditions. We want the All of those things that bring back memories, and so uh, it's a time of year to really remember the value of of the things that we cherish and love. And the, the problem, though, is for all the nostalgia and all the tradition that this time of year brings, if we're not careful, we can actually miss the significance of Christmas because we Only view it through our traditions and that which is comfortable and familiar. I think it's safe to say that Christmas matters more than perhaps many of us give credit. When we think about Christmas, Christmas is celebrated in a time of year that really is fitting. It is fitting and and good that we celebrate Christmas in a time of, of the year when the days are longer. Uh, night comes on sooner. Cold is growing. It's at the end of the year, but it's a time when we celebrate God doing a new work and new beginnings. And so, in a season of dark and cold, we're reminded that this is a time where we focus on light and life in Christ in the midst of a season that's dark and cold and dying. In Riddler suggests that the coming of Christ as an infant might be something that we'd wish to celebrate in spring. She says uh, in one of her poems, we, it would make sense, it'd be more logical to celebrate this new beginning, this new life, this new thing in spring, right? Because that's when everything's new and blossoming and growing. She says that juice is in the soil, the leaf and the vein, and sugar flows to movement and limbs and brain. It, it's a a time of of newness, so why don't we celebrate Christmas then? But she responds this way, yet if you think again, it is good that Christmas comes at the dark dream of the year that we might wish to sleep over, for birth is awaking, birth is effort and pain, and now, at midwinter, are the hints and the eklings that sleep must be broken. And so, she says, Christ comes at the iron senseless time, at the time where it makes as little sense as possible. He comes, she says, to force the glory into frozen veins. His warmth wakes, green life glazed in the pool, wakes all calm and crystal trance with the living Pains. I love that last line. And what's Riddler's point? Christ comes to do a great work, a work which will, she says, force glory into our frozen veins. And the warmth from His light will wake us and warm us. But at that last part, he, he comes to bring the living pains. He came and lived the living, the living pains. Christmas is a reminder that He experienced and he came and experienced what life has to offer, its ups and its downs. He knows what life is like. He lived our living pains and we are invited to come to him as one who knows what it's like to live and walk this earth, to deal with the suffering. And so Christmas really is remarkable and it's not just remarkable for that and the timing but it's, it's remarkable when we spend just a few moments thinking of what all happened during the birth of Jesus and at the birth of Jesus. Christmas is when we remember that the ancient of days became a newborn infant. It's a time when we remember that the eternal word became an infant who could not speak a word As John Dunn says, a preacher, he's a preacher who lived from uh, 1572 to 1631, he says, uh, concerning Mary, he says, thou hast light in dark and shutst in little room, immensity cloistered in thy dear womb. The immensity of God now put into a womb. The first coming of Christ is when the prince of light, the light of the world is conceived in the darkness of Mary's womb. Christ comes to the darkness. He invades the darkness in order to conquer the darkness. So Christmas matters. Christmas matters precisely for all those reasons, but it also matters because of what many of you are going through now. I was in a conversation earlier this week about what many in our church are going through. You've shared the the struggles and the things that you're going through, and and we're aware of them, and I'm aware of them, and you've confided in me and asked for prayer. And I share with this individual, it seems as though there are more difficult things going on right now in the lives of many people within our church. I could be wrong. Maybe it's just people are sharing more, but, but it seems like there's more. Something is happening at this time of year that people are going through more stuff. Many of you are hurting. It's a dark time in life. It's a dark time of year. Not just outside, but in your own heart as well. And so we come to Christmas in light of that. And so there's no better time. Perhaps even, not just the calendar, but in the circumstance that you are in, there's no better time for us to reflect on some wonderful Christmas truths. Some truths of Christmas. And we want to reflect on the importance and the weight and the gravity of Christmas. And so this morning, I want us to look at Luke 2 and spend a few brief moments considering why Christmas matters. Specifically, I want us to consider a new why Christmas matters for you. Not just today, but every day. What are the implications of Christmas for you? I want you to leave here with a sense of why Christmas matters not just in December, but in July. Why does Christmas matter when you wake up and when you lie down? How does Christmas impact everything we go through as human beings living in a sinful, broken world? Think of it this way. I want to answer the question, how does Christmas help me when I'm heartbroken? What bearing does Christmas have when I've received that terrible diagnosis or when I heard that news, I dreaded in my gut to hear, and I've actually heard it, and now my world is rocked. What does Christmas have to say to them? And so this morning I want us to consider one takeaway truth. What we're going to summarize out of Luke chapter 1, or chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. It's this: In Jesus, God comes historically and humbly to do a great work which is good news of great joy for His people. Let me say that again. In Jesus, God comes historically and humbly to do a great work, which is good news of great joy for His people. So let's unpack this one takeaway truth and see how uh, Luke shows us this. Luke chapter 2, beginning of verse 1, it says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, That the whole empire should be registered. The first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered each to his own town. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea. To the city of David which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and family line of David. To be registered along with Mary who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified." But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly hosts with the angel praising God and saying glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. And when the angels had left them and had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off. And found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And after seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things which they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told." When we read this account, we see that Jesus comes historically and humbly. Notice the note that Luke strikes. Luke is writing a historical account. That's how he opens his gospel. And he says it's in the days when a decree goes out from Caesar Augustus. And and who is the governor? Jesus was born in time and in space and in history. What he came to do has application and implication for this world, Jesus took on flesh and bone, and he comes in time. Jesus actually came. Now, there are some that want to debate, you know, some academics out there that want to debate that Jesus never existed you cannot make a legitimate case that Jesus never existed. You simply cannot. You, can, you might can make an argument about who he was. Was he really God? And you may not believe that he really was the Messiah. That's one thing. But historically, to say that Jesus never came is a little bit dishonest. But Jesus comes to do a great work and he comes in time. What he does is is meant to have a change in this world. Jesus did not come just to change some other world, some other place. He did not just come to get us into heaven. He came to change creation to restore and redeem creation and people who are a part of his creation. And so he comes historically, but not just he doesn't come just historically. He comes humbly. Look at verses 4 through 7. It says that he was uh, born to Joseph and Mary and and they cannot find a place to stay. And so they have to go where the animals are and they lay him in a manger when he's born. And so how how can we not see that God came humbly in Christ? I mean, think about it. The God who was governing history actually becomes a part of history. Sinclair Ferguson says that he not only becomes a part of history, but God, the immense triune God, the son of uh, the second person of that trinity becomes a part of history, and not just a part of history, but the tiniest part of history. The one who threw the stars into their places, who created the vast cosmos ...comes into the womb of the Virgin Mary... ...through a secret work of the Holy Spirit... ...Christ came humbly, lowly. Paul tells us in Philippians... ...that even though Jesus existed in the form of God... ...He did not consider equality with God... ...as a thing to be exploited. Instead, He emptied Himself... ...by assuming the form of a servant... ...taking on the likeness of humanity. And when He had come as a man... He humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So Jesus comes historically and humbly. Jesus enters the mess and the muddle of our world. He lived it. Sometimes you think Jesus is uncomfortable in the mess and muddle of your own life, but that's what he did, didn't he? He came and he lived He lived under an oppressive government. He experienced opposition and mockery. He experienced tragic loss. He experienced abandonment by friends and family. He wept at the death of his friend Lazarus. He knew what it was like to be hungry. So he comes historically and humbly, but he also comes to be like us. Hebrews 2:27 says that he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest pertaining to God to make a propitiation for the sins of the people. And then it says for since he himself has suffered when he was tempted he is able to help those who are tempted. And so think of it this way. Because Jesus came historically, because he came humbly, Everything Jesus says to us, everything that Jesus promises us comes with a certificate of authenticity. Jesus is not speaking as one who does not know. This is not like a mouse trying to console an elephant by saying, I know exactly what you're going through. This has real daily application. And so... I want us to be careful that we don't so over-spiritualize Christmas. There is a spiritual component, but that that we don't over-spiritualize it so much that we miss the real-world consequences. So Jesus' coming at Christmas has something for you to take away today, to live out this week. And So in Jesus, God comes historically and humbly, we said, to do a great work. Well, what is the great work? Well, I want to focus in on one verse, or a couple of verses, but one verse in particular that gives us some aspects we could examine. Look at verse 11. The angels proclaim to the shepherds, and they say, The angel says, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. So, what's one of the great works that Jesus came historically? And humbly to do. Well the first one is he came to save his people. He came to save us. And to save us he had to become like us. Jesus was fully God and fully man. And he had to be in order to save us. One of the most important things you need to remember. About Jesus become, becoming an infant. Is that if he did not. What does that mean for our redemption in other words think of it this way there, there was a, a, a conflict in church history where people said Jesus didn't have a, uh, a mind like we do he, he did not have emotions like we do or he did not have a heart and a will like we do he did not have a nature like we do and the danger is that is it was put this way that which he has not assumed he has not redeemed So if there's any part of us as human beings that Jesus does not have, then that part is not redeemed. And so Jesus comes to redeem not just us, but all of us from birth to death. There is a a very real implication that he had to come as an infant. He didn't come, he didn't drop out of heaven as a 30-year-old man, right? But he came and he redeemed Every aspect of your life, you teenagers, anybody who's under 30, what would it say, what would would you do if there was nothing about Jesus being born? Where would you find comfort? Where would you receive from Jesus that assurance that I know what that's like? You wouldn't have it. All you would have are the sayings of a 30-year-old man who had no idea what it's like to be a child, no idea what it was like to have a mother and a father, no idea any of that. And so he had to become like us. And the, the angel says that a Savior is born. So we do not, as the writer of Hebrews says in, four, in chapter 4, verse 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. But one who has been tempted in every way as we are, and yet without sin. So he comes to save us. Save us from what? For what reason? Well, the New Testament tells us it's to save us from our sins, to save us from our rebellion. Paul says that God shows His love, He demonstrates His love for us, and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So think of it this way. Christ came to save us from our sins, and He did that by showing us love. Jesus came to love us out of our sins. Jesus came to show what it means to be loved by God, to be loved by a Savior, And that he laid down his life for us. We deserve death for our sins. But Christ came so that he might die for us. He came to save us. That's one of the great works he came to do. But there's another work he came to do. Another aspect of this great work. Look at verse 11. It says, Today in the city of David a Savior was born for you who is? The Messiah. So not only does he come to save us, but he comes to fulfill God's promises. Uh, Messiah means an anointed one. The promised one. The awaited one. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.20 that every one of God's promises is yes in Christ. So without Christ coming, we would have no assurance, at least no visible assurance... That, Christ will keep his, or that God would keep His promises. He can tell us, and we can believe by faith, but Christ is the physical uh, proof. And every one of God's promises finds its yes in Him. So, every promise that you read in the Old Testament, every promise you read in the New Testament, apart from Christ, you cannot trust them. Because every promise finds its what? Yes in Him. It's so important that Jesus comes because all the promises are filtered in Him and through Him. The Puritan Richard Sibbs puts it this way. All promises made to the church are either promises of Christ Himself or promises in Him and for His sake. Because he takes all promises from God and conveys them and makes them good to us. God makes the promises and performs them in Christ and for Christ. Without Christ coming, the promises are not fulfilled. But God has kept his promise, and he's proven that he'll keep his promise in the coming of Christ. So he came to save his people. Jesus came to fulfill God's promises. But there's a third aspect to this. Look at verse 11 again. Who is the Messiah? The Lord. Jesus came to establish the kingdom. That's one of the themes of Matthew and the Gospels. Jesus came to inaugurate the kingdom of God on earth. He is the Lord. And that's a huge statement right there, right? So here's something we need to understand. Jesus is not Lord because it's a title that he earned. He is Lord. Just the same way somebody is born into a royal family. They don't become royalty by earning qualifications. They're born into it. Jesus is born and he is the Lord. He is Yahweh. And so he comes to establish a kingdom. He comes to wage war against the kingdom of darkness. He comes to conquer the kingdom of darkness. And he does that through the cross, through his death and resurrection. But there's one more aspect I want you to see Jesus brings glory to God. Notice how many times glory shows up in this passage. And if you look at verse 8, it says the angels, uh, the shepherds were out there, right? And an angel of the Lord stood before them. And then look, the glory of the Lord shone around them, right? Then it says a little bit later, there was a multitude of heavenly hosts in verse 13 saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven. And then it look down at verse 20. It says that uh, the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God. Three times in this passage, we are told that glory is being given to God because of what is happening. Jesus coming brings glory to God, but not just that. Don't miss this. Jesus coming as a human being means that Jesus crowns your life with the possibility of glory. In other words, because Jesus comes and He is born as a human and He brings glory to God in doing so, it means that your life Your physical life, you living in this existence, can bring glory to God. And I much prefer that, if I'm just being honest. I much prefer that than the alternative. The alternative is that we live a life, we experience it, we suffer, we hurt, we ache, we're heartbroken, but there is no hope of glory. You see, when Jesus comes as a human being... It means that everything that we go through, there is a possibility that God can use it for His glory. Think about it. If the Lord Jesus can bring glory to Himself and, and to God through simply being born in a manger, if He can bring glory to Himself through that same baby growing up to be a man and being crucified on the cross for our sins, if God can bring Himself glory through that, can He not bring glory through your messy, tattered life. Apart from Christmas, there's only suffering and no glory. I mean, don't we pray that sometimes in difficult times? We just say, God, I don't know how, but, but use this for your glory somehow. Listen, if Christ has not come, that prayer is meaningless. There's no glory to be had if Christ has not come. But because of Christ, and only because of Christ, though we suffer, there is glory, because though He suffered, there is glory. In 1 Peter, Peter writes, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Just the same way that Christ Jesus connects God and man. There's, there's God and there's man and there's this huge gap in between. Jesus in the middle is the mediator. He's the bridge and he, he, he spans the gap. But that's true of so many other things. The promises of God and man and Jesus bridges the gap. But then there's the glory and the suffering and there's this huge gap and what bridges that gap between glory and suffering is Christ such that we can rejoice and be glad because when we suffer... Like Christ, we also have the promise that there will be glory. And so all of these points, these aspects of this great work, really point us beyond Christmas. They point us beyond Christmas, beyond the baby, and beyond December. Because every one of these promises and every one of these aspects point us to the cross. They point us to Jesus' death and resurrection and to His ascension. In other words, think of it this way. Everything we've talked about cannot be separated from the fact that Jesus was born to die. He was born to die. What gives the cradle its significance is the cross and vice versa. Think of it. What makes the womb so beautiful and meaningful is the tomb. And what makes the tomb so beautiful and meaningful is the womb. The cradle and the cross, the womb and the tomb, the birth of Jesus and the death of Jesus go together. If I say peanut butter and, what do you say? Peanut butter and? Right. Nobody says peanut butter and mustard. If I say ham and? Ham and? Right. Nobody says ham and turnips. The same is true of Jesus' birth and death. They are meant to go together. And so Jesus comes historically and humbly to do a great work. And we've talked about that great work. But it's a work which is good news of great joy for His people. So as we think about this and as we reflect on this, we begin to understand why the angels say... It is a good news of great joy. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. He is God incarnate and enfleshed. And so we say, why does Christmas matter? Because it is the dawning of hope and joy in the dark. It is light coming to those in darkness. And that's why the angel says there is good news the angel says, don't be afraid, I bring you good news of great joy. Good news. What does it mean to bring good news of great joy? The angel is saying it is good news that will bring great joy. Good news that is the source of joy. And so the birth of Christmas, the birth of Jesus at Christmas is the birth of joy. And so as dark as your times and your days may be, the birth of Christ Is a cause for celebration. Christmas is good news because it's the the revelation that God has come in history and in time to save us from our sins, to fulfill his promises, to establish the kingdom, and to bring himself glory. And so, what are we to do with this news of great joy? Sometimes we, 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 we're so application-oriented when, when we come and hear a sermon, but sometimes there are sermons that you... There's not so much something for you to do. There's something for you to receive. There's something for you to rest in, to take to heart. It's like if you stepped outside on a warm morning and you stepped out in the sun. For me to give you some kind of application, something for you to do, would be like me telling you to to go outside and stand in the sun and then make yourself warm. If you just stand there, you will be warmed, right? And so what do we do with this good news of great joy? We, we rest, we, we rejoice, we, we receive it, we, we let it wash over us. We sit and be thankful. Because let's be honest, if there was ever a reason that God could abandon us, leave us for dead, let us wallow in our own misery... Would it not be because we rebelled against him? That we sinned against him? That we were his enemies? But in Christ, God acts. God moves. God saves. At our absolute worst, God sends his absolute best, his only begotten son. God becomes a man in Christ. And this baby would grow up to take up a cross, be crucified, and have the punishment for all our sins fall on him. And he dies for us. And so as you look, as we think about Christmas and we, we think about the birth of Jesus, don't miss the, the, the foreshadowing. Understand that everything about Christmas is connected to the cross. Just think about the parallels. He's enclosed in a womb. He'll be enclosed in a tomb. He humbly comes in a cradle for lowly animals. And he's crucified on a cross for lowly criminals. But even though he's buried in a tomb. And even though he's enclosed in the womb. He breaks forth from both womb and tomb. And he transforms both cradle and cross. Jesus is transforms and restores and crowns those things with glory. Jesus came to do a great work that will be good news of great joy. Whatever you've been through in the last week, whatever you're going to go through this week, whatever you've been through in the last 30 days or whatever comes in the next 30 days, take heart knowing that there is good news of great joy. And the good news of great joy is that Christ is born. Where can you find joy this holiday season? It will not surprise you to hear that our text this morning points you to Christ. Maybe you're hoping to have some semblance of joy. You're, you're hoping to kind of fake it until you make it through the holidays. You're relying on the traditions and the the nostalgia, and whatever it is about Christmas to bring you some semblance of peace and joy. But what happens when the holidays are over? Will that joy last? Will it sustain? So what do we do? We rejoice in the birth of Christ and celebrate the good news that brings joy that Christ is born. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus coming and Lord Jesus, thank you that you, you condescended and you came in, in human flesh and lived a life without sin such that when you died on the cross, it was not for any of your sins that you were punished, it was for the sins of your people. And Lord, that is good news of great joy because it means that no matter how dark the day is, the light will come. No matter what we go through and what we suffer, the glory will come. No matter how many kingdoms and and no matter how the kingdoms of this world set themselves up against you, in the end, they will all fall and all will bow before King Jesus. And God, no matter how hopeless and dark and senseless the world becomes, you have fulfilled every single one of your promises in Christ. God, when we take a moment and reflect on what Christmas means, these few wonderful truths of Christmas, God, we, we sense welling up within us joy. Lord, Perhaps there's somebody here this morning who has who who would say that they don't have that joy. That joy that is is an undercurrent through through all that this world can throw at us. Perhaps they've never trusted Christ as their Savior. God help them to see that they're sinners separated from you. But that they can have forgiveness and joy by trusting Christ as their Savior, that they would believe and rest that Jesus died on the cross and paid the penalty for their sins, and, God, that they would ask to be forgiven. And, Lord, for those of us who are believers, we receive that good news. God, let it be implanted deep within our hearts and bring us great joy every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.